you know, as people, I think we're quite literal. I think we're quite literal. As much as we idealize that we're deep and truly thoughtful beings, we're actually quite literal. There's a saying, beauty is only skin deep. So, how many of us would agree that what truly matters, the true value of people, goes beyond appearance? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you would attest to the truth that beauty is only skin deep, so true beauty, true value, goes beyond appearance? Let me show, see a show of hands. Okay. And some people here are not sure. We raise our hands because we say the true value of people goes beyond the upper layer, the skin. So then, how come, if that being true, we can't as human beings seem to get past those few millimeters of skin? Our preoccupation, the attention that we devote ourselves to is mainly on outward appearance of ourselves, of others, and of things. Don't you treat physically attractive people better than people who aren't? Or at least aren't you tempted to do so? Right? We attest to the fact that, oh, what really matters is beyond the skin, beyond what is skin deep. And yet... That being the case, if that is the case that we testify to as truth, then how come as human beings what we see is that people who are attractive physically seem to have an easier go at it, that we treat such people better. That's why a truth of life is that physically attractive people have an easier journey through life than those who aren't. We know this, right? Don't we? And if you don't know this yet, then you haven't been paying attention. But we know this. Can I get a show of nodding of heads if you know that this is true? Yeah. We're quite literal. We focus on outward things, superficial things, shallow things. In what we see. For as deep as we'd like to think that we are, as human beings, generally speaking, we're not all that deep. Therefore, it's not surprising that we, as people, struggle with anything that goes deeper than skin. We struggle with the emotional. We struggle with the mental. And most assuredly, we struggle with the spiritual. People will do all sorts of things to address their physical appearance and the things of the way things look. People will make all kinds of changes and adjustments immediately to address outward things. But go beyond the skin. And all of a sudden, even though human beings, we'll all say that what really matters goes beyond what is skin deep. What happens? We don't want to deal with the emotional. People don't, do not want to deal with the emotional. 
So as soon as it requires any kind of investment to really unearth what's going on down there, people won't do it. Want an example of this? Do you know how many people avoid getting any kind of counseling, any kind of help whatsoever, because they say they don't need it, when clearly they do, and even they know they do? Women are bad, men are worse, but we are all terrible. I mean, I'm just using that as an example. That's not like the whole of it. Yeah, we struggle with the emotional. We struggle with the mental. We don't actually want to look under the hood and seeing what's going on in terms of why we think the way we do, have our thoughts challenged, to be thoughtful about what it is things mean. Right? People will put all that effort into the exterior, but then get into the mental and that's just too much work. So we ignore it. We'll ignore the emotional. For sure as heck, we'll ignore the mental. And people pay the price for it. This brings me to the deepest layer, the deepest level, the core of all that there is, and that's the spiritual. Most assuredly, the spiritual. After all, isn't the spiritual the deepest reality of human existence? It's the part that remains no matter what happens to the exterior. No matter what happens to the physical, the spiritual still remains. After this thing that we call life, even during this thing called life, the spirit exists. And after it's all done, said and done, the spirit continues to persist. It's assuredly the deepest reality of human existence. And being the deepest, therefore, it's actually the most profound. And yet, for so many people, they don't account for their spiritual state when they're responding to the question, how's life? I'll put it a different way. When people ask, how was your week? How are things? How are you? Even when people's lives are spiritually like wrecked, they'll say, what? Fine. I'm okay. Not bad. You have to go to the trouble of asking if they're even aware. What about your spiritual life? You know how many times I've asked that question to people? How are you doing? And then they'll respond how they respond. And then I'll ask, well, how's your spiritual life? And then the answer is quite different. I've always found the contrast to be quite startling. People will say, oh yeah, life's pretty good. How are you spiritually? Oh, yeah, not very good. If the spiritual being the deepest, most profound, the most permanent thing that exists in human existence, then how, could it, how is it possible that we could possibly have such different responses depending on what the heck is being asked? Isn't life just life? Meaning we only have one life. We don't live separate lives, no matter how much you try to compartmentalize. And at the core of who we are, the spiritual. And yet, isn't that the part that is most ignored? The spiritual. 
even for people who are called to see life and reality through more than just physical sight, often the struggle to see beyond the superficial persists. Isn't that why some Christians can come together with other Christians to celebrate truth, deep spiritual truth and reality, and yet feel disengaged? You ever felt that? You come from out there, in here, to worship together in spirit and in truth with fellow believers in the fellowship of the body of Christ to deep reality and truth that maybe the world, definitely the world doesn't understand, but that we have come to know and believe and yet somehow feel disengaged? Does that happen to you? This passage is actually presenting something glorious. Even though if you just read it in a vacuum on its own, it might seem quite the opposite. This passage is actually presenting something glorious if you have the eyes to see it. It's all about beholding the king and beholding his glorious cross. So let me ask you this question. How do you behold the glory of Christ's cross? By allowing truth to guide you to see deeper reality. By allowing truth to guide you to see deeper reality. And notice when I said truth, it's not small t truth, it's big t truth. The truth of God. When we talk about allowing truth to guide you to see deeper reality, the three things in our passage I'd like to highlight for you for you to see. And the first of these is that the king through the cross has triumphed over death. The king through the cross has triumphed over death. Jesus, here in our passage, goes from within the city of Jerusalem, he goes out bearing his own cross, goes to the place called the skull, a skull, Golgotha, and there is crucified between two criminals. And all the while, the Jewish authorities will not leave Pilate alone for the message that is written because they want nothing to do with Jesus. The people who represent the nation, Judaism, the community of Israel, want nothing to do with Jesus. If you look at it through that perspective, then it is, as we started off, a sad, shameful conclusion to a life. However, look again. What do we see? John doesn't take time to go into all of the gory details per se because that's not his focus. That's not his goal. It's not that these things didn't happen. Certainly they did. Jesus is hanging there naked on the cross and yet that is not what John is highlighting here. What is he highlighting? He goes to the place called the place of a skull and there the Lord Jesus, the King, as it even says on the sign, the king of the Jews. Oh, but the king who is so much more than just the king of the Jews hangs there. But as he hangs there, notice where he's placed. He's not on the side, but he's smack dab in the middle. The focus isn't even upon these other two. It's the fact that he's in the middle. That's the focus. Because in the middle, Jesus, the king, 
the Lord of glory is on display. As he's giving his life, the king at the place called the skull through his death is going to bring about new life. He emphasizes the skull, the place of a skull. And for every other person who'd ever died there, that's what it remained. You know what Golgotha is in Latin, or at least the word we know it as, derived from the Latin word? Golgotha, or place of a skull? It's called Calvary. But when you and I think of Calvary, we're not thinking horrific. When we talk about Calvary, we're thinking of glorious. We're thinking of wondrous. Why? Because Jesus, in his glorious sacrifice, in his kingly sacrifice and work, completely changed the meaning and the significance of that place. It's no longer a place of death, of a skull, but rather it is the place where life was renewed. Second, the king, through the cross, fulfilled God's word. Jesus, as he's crucified there and hanging, below him, below the cross, is another bit of activity going on there. What's going on? Roman soldiers are divvying up Jesus' garments, his clothes, his outer robe, probably his sandals, and you know such effects. So they split it into four piles for the four of them, but they come to the tunic, which would be the innermost garment. This would be the innermost garment that would be touching the skin. But what's interesting to note is the great pains that John goes to describe this tunic. He could have just said, and they didn't tear it because, you know, it was wasteful. So they gambled over it. He could have said it in many different ways, but he describes it as being one piece made what? The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. If you did a word search of Scripture and actually search out one piece, the only references you'll get are all temple-related. They're all going to be related to sacrifice, the temple, instruments, and implements. Okay, So it's all nothing but Old Testament Scripture, except one. That's this passage. This passage is the only other place that you're going to find the term one piece. Because here Jesus, who as we talked about last week, is the lamb, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is also the high priest. They don't tear his garment. Do you know what else was torn? One seamless thing from top to bottom. Do you guys recognize that from Scripture in the New Testament? You'll find it. You'll find it in the New Testament upon Jesus' giving up his life and upon his death, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain is described as one piece, but not Jesus' tunic. Not Jesus' tunic, which represents so much in terms of who his physical body and himself. No, that piece is not torn because Jesus being our high priest and the perfect lamb and sacrifice for us is the one who reconciled us to the Father. To God. So they cast lots for it. And the third thing, the king through the cross has redefined what relationships are for his people. As Jesus looks, he sees 
his mother, his mother's sister, another Mary, wife to a man named Clopas, and then another Mary, Magdalene. And as Jesus looks down, he sees his mother, and then he sees his disciple that he loved, probably John. And he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then, she said, and then he says to that disciple, behold your mother. Now, of course, we can take this as a concerned son, that before he departs, that he is caring for his mother. And certainly, I'm sure there is that, that Jesus wants his mother to be looked after, to be cared for. I mean, that'd be consistent with the commands of God as one treats their parent. However, this reference, woman, if you are remembering really well, will hearken you back to early in John, because you'll remember that Jesus uses this term for Mary, his mother, before. It was when Jesus had not yet really started his ministry and they're at a wedding feast and Mary comes to him and says, the wine has run out. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, woman, woman, to gently put distance between himself and her. What do you want me to do about this? My time, my hour has not yet come. That hour he was talking about is this hour. Here again, he puts some distance between himself and her He is not approaching her as his mother, but he says, woman, behold your son. If this was purely just a, I want my mother to be uh, taken care of and looked after, why would he have started with Mary and say, look at your son? Wouldn't he have started with the most logical place? My disciple, see your mother, take care of her. That's not what he says. He says, woman, behold your son. And then behold your mother. But he used the same term for her. What is this? This is Jesus from the cross demonstrating a truth and a deep truth that is relevant to all of us as his church. It's a redefining of all relationship through him. The relationship between John and Mary is one of family but not because of physical adoption or blood relation or any of these things, but it has to do with their relationship with him. When Jesus said, woman, what am I to do at the wedding feast? He was saying, look, you can't come to me with your you know, faith in me as, as your son, because that's not how this is going to work. You have to come to me as all the rest do, with the faith of a disciple. That's the statement that is being made even then. Mary had to come to Jesus as everybody else did with the faith of a disciple. Here in this moment, it's the faith of the disciple and the relationship that is redefined that Jesus is pointing out here. For both the disciple and for Mary, the relationship they have with each other that Jesus brings together occurs through himself. These are the three things that I want to highlight First, the king through the cross has triumphed over death. We talked about that. Second, the king through the cross fulfilled God's word. Even as they were gambling and dividing up his clothing, Jesus was fulfilling God's word. And what is the fulfillment of God's word? His promises. It says, actually in the passage, to fulfill scripture. But scripture is another way to say God's word and 
fulfilling scripture, it's fulfilling God's word. In other words, Jesus is keeping his own word. And the third thing, as I just pointed out, the king through the cross has redefined what relationships are for his people. He has redefined what relationships are for his people. I want to highlight this for each of us because we can't have a relationship with each other any other way. Our relationship with each other is not because we have so much in common. It's not because we have the same maybe ethnic background, cultural background, socioeconomic background, circumstantial background. That's how the world comes together, which is also why the world is not really together. What brings the church together? Our relationship with each other is completely defined and redefined because our relationship goes through Jesus. Our king, our high priest, our God demonstrated ultimate vulnerability as he hung on the cross. Can you define it any other way? Can you describe it any other way? As Jesus hangs there on the cross, stark naked, can you describe that in any other way other than vulnerability, even though he is God? Anyone? We don't often think about God and vulnerability going together, and yet here is God being completely vulnerable before the universe. And if that isn't something that is blow you over, amazing, awe-inspiring, and shocking, then you will never come across anything that will shock you, bring you awe. That God himself is demonstrating that kind of vulnerability. Vulnerability drives connection. It does. Sadly, I think people don't realize that. Vulnerability drives connection. It is God's vulnerability that brought the reality of unity, of connection with God for humanity. It's God's vulnerability that brought us together. Don't you see? God's vulnerability. So even as our Lord Jesus, our God, has demonstrated the strength in vulnerability to drive connection, let us follow his example. Can I get an amen to that? He is our example that vulnerability is not weakness. Let us lay down the myth that vulnerability is weakness. Vulnerability is not weakness. The myth is that vulnerability is weakness because strength is the absence of the possibility of getting hurt. If there's no possibility of you getting hurt, that is strength, some people mistakenly think. That's not strength. That's cowardice. That's fear. Strength, instead, comes from courage. Let us see that the courage that vulnerability requires is strength. That it is strength, indeed, to be vulnerable. In fact, that it is the greatest strength. Because that's the strength that God demonstrated upon his glorious throne of the cross. I know in and of ourselves, in a worldly way, none of us want to be vulnerable with anybody for the most part. Because none of us want to run the risk of being hurt. 
So what do most people do? We hope for the day when we will have no vulnerabilities, meaning nothing that could allow us to get hurt. We'll have the perfect job, the perfect husband or wife, we'll have the perfect kids, we'll have the perfect house, the perfect cars, the perfect place to live, the perfect kind of importance and power, the perfect amount of you know, money saved, the perfect amount of you know, community service, the perfect amount of you know, appearance, not too much, but not too little, like whatever that is, right? And in that place and in that moment, at that time, then no one will be able to hurt you. And then you'll be vulnerable. Good gosh. Does that time ever exist? Will that ever come? Not on this side of eternity, it won't. And if our Lord Jesus has been vulnerable, demonstrates his vulnerability in allowing himself, the king of the universe, to be injured, to be pierced, to be hurt, then let me ask you, what are we waiting on? What is our excuse? We're certainly if we're disciples of Jesus, wanting to follow his example, amen? So let me ask you, are you practicing vulnerability? Are you practicing vulnerability? How are you practicing it? If you're being driven by fear, I promise you, you're not being vulnerable. When you're afraid, the courage that is required invulnerability will rise up against the fear where you will do what is fearful but do it because you know it's what will drive connection because that's the example Christ gave how are you practicing it if you're not too sure how you're practicing it the chances are maybe you're not so then my question to you is this what steps are you going to take toward greater vulnerability it's not that you have to be perfectly vulnerable today. You don't go from zero vulnerability to perfect vulnerability in one night. But certainly vulnerability is steps each day. And there are steps each of, you, each of us can take. Amen? But we need to be real clear on what those steps are. Don't lie or stand in the place of abstract ambiguity. What I mean is, don't just talk about the idea of vulnerability. Do things that actually drive you closer to greater vulnerability. Vulnerability is a spectrum. You can be somewhat vulnerable. You can be more vulnerable, more vulnerable, more vulnerable, and then Christ-like vulnerable. You know what I'm saying? It's not just a are you vulnerable or not. No, no, it's spectrum of vulnerable. We're always going to need to keep working toward vulnerability. And this is a spiritual truth that we can only see because we are in Christ. And I leave you with this thought. In a world that cannot see the glory of Christ's cross, we behold our King and see its glory, the glory of the cross. See God's providence and work amidst the circumstances of life by beholding Christ, our King, and His cross. Behold Him. To this end, focus upon Christ's cross. We don't want to behold our King because maybe we feel shame. But it's not the shame that Jesus wants you to feel or experience or see, but the guilt, the guilt that He frees us from. 
through his own vulnerability while we were still his enemies that he took that so that now we could be set free. I hope that we'll meditate upon this, reflect upon this, and take steps, each of us, toward this. Amen.